Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which so, so close, which, sorry, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can take a seat. So here's what I'm going to do. Laying out that vision, let's talk about what this means, not just vision-wise, but why we're here, okay? Because I need you to understand this. At the depths of who I am and the depths of how we operate as leaders, man, I believe in the church. I, I, I believe that it is God's sovereign hand that he uses the church to intermediate the grace upon the world, meaning that everyone who's heard the gospel of Jesus Christ as a Christian, is part of this body. And that's God's beautiful plan. I believe in it, man. I believe that this should be a place where out there they feel lost, but not in here. Out there they feel the tension of racism, but not in here. Out there they feel the brokenness, but not in here. And as they, they're, they're a part of, not just here, like Missio de Peoria and Axiom Church and CCV and Dream City, whatever it is, God, by his beautiful design, has given the world the church. And the first thing I'm going to lay out to you is you being a part of that. You being here now to understand that. I'm going to jump right into Hebrews 12.1. And for you to hear, you being a Christian are to run. You are not to coast. I am not to coast. We're to take this thing absolutely serious. Hear what it says in the, the, the second half of Hebrews, um, uh, the verse 1 of chapter 12. Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We don't know a lot about what's going on in the book of Hebrews, and I'll give us the context in a minute. But this idea, what what the writer of Hebrews is laying out is, I have something for you to know. It's the only imperative. It's the only verb in these two verses. It's the only thing you need to be aware of because everything else comes along this idea. You are to take this serious. You're not to walk. You're not to mosey, but you're to run. And I just want to state from the jump Something that I I think I can help remind us of on a weekly basis, that there is a grit to Christianity that we need to get on board with. There is something that I would call like, like it's the Kobe factor, it's like the Jordan factor, like I don't care, you can try to guard me all day long, you won't stop me. You won't stop me. I'm hitting the game winner, I promise you it's over. There's this like, go ahead, bring it on. And there's, there's this swag about what Jesus has done that he will carry us to the end. And he puts it in imperative of run, man, run. And this isn't the first time. We don't know a lot about what's going on holistically in the church that, that Hebrews is written to. But I will say this. Listen to the, the language that he uses here um, through the entire book of Hebrews. He uses words like endure, persevere, fight, be alert, be strengthened, don't drift, don't neglect, don't be sluggish, don't take your eternal security for granted. This isn't the first time either. Um, Paul actually uses in 1 Timothy this language, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. So let's just start from the jump, the idea that everything's going to be rallied behind. Whatever vision it is, us as Christians, we're going to run. We're not going to be half-hearted about this thing. Together, Individually, we're going to run. It's worth it. 
Now, I said everything else comes along that. Listen to how he starts this before he says, run. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So, um, my daughter Eve, we have a, a sand pit where there's like a, a fire. And uh, my daughter Eve goes into the sand area and she fills these buckets, these beach buckets. Um, so they're about this big, you know, the, the, where you make sand castles. And she fills these beach buckets up with full of sand, right? And when it's time to go get the boys or whatever from school or go to the store or whatever, I'm like, all right, Eve, let's go. We need to go. Now, you would think that means I'm done playing with sand and now it's time to get in the car. But it doesn't to her. Um, what it means is she has just filled her bucket and her sand bucket needs to come with her. So here's a three-year-old dragging this heavy sand bucket, moving super slow, and I can't help but going, what are you doing? What, what would make you think? Where have we ever brought a big pile of sand into our car? Okay? And what, what the writer of Hebrews is doing is, you need to get somewhere, and that's just dumb. You wouldn't carry a bucket of sand. So immediately, what we're to do is to lay aside anything that would hinder that running. If there's anything, now, now listen, there's some obvious things that we can state, right? Like, I think we all know there's the pornography thing. There's the gossip thing. There's, you, you, could, you could be gambling way too much, whatever it is. But as, as communities, as redemption communities, this fall, we've gone through uh, a book called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. And it's got underneath some things that I would argue are keeping us from running. For example, power. Like, for whatever reason, we want that promotion more than we want to run. And so we feel like we can walk while we try to get this promotion in all the wrong ways. Or, or we want to run in this direction while we flirt with her that's not my wife. Or I can run in this direction and do this and do that. Or there's greed or there's getting caught up in romanticism. Whatever it is, stop. Lay it aside because that sin is clinging to you and you're carrying a sand bucket. Lay it there and Run. Run. Don't walk this thing out. Don't jog this thing out. Run. But it doesn't end, of course, because the back half of that verse one, he continues to say not just to run, but with endurance, the race that is set before you, which I think is beautiful um, because it doesn't provide this hundred yard dash, but rather we're looking down this mile track that we can see we're to run this mile out. And what's beautiful about this is the NLT, which is the New Living Translation, um, adds one word. So the ESV and the NLT, they're just different translations. The NLT, if you don't know, is like a thought for thought. It's trying to get at the thought of the author, not so much an exact word for word. And he adds, that the author or the, the, the group of authors that put uh, the NLT together adds one word to the, the, what is in the ESV. This is what he says. So the ESV, again, says, uh, with endurance the race that is set before us. This is what the NLT says. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. So let's just be clear. God has called us to run, not just for the sake of running, but he has a task, and this is where I don't want to get into individualism, but for the sake of what the text is getting at, he has a task for you. And I love that it's in the plural. He has a task for us. God has put this in front of us. God has given you something. Okay, let's keep going, though. I promise it gets better. Verse 2, when we are running, sticking with this race analogy, this sprint analogy, we are to run looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Um, that word looking, I need you to see that word looking. You know what's crazy? When I was trying to do my own translation in the Greek, I came to the word looking, and I honestly thought it was completely backwards because literally translated, translated the word looking means looking away. That's how you'd honestly translate this word. So when you're reading it, it technically says looking away, and then it adds these, this two-letter word, which is super helpful, looking away 
to Jesus. Do you understand? So it's not just saying stare at Jesus, but the things that you've laid aside, burn those bridges, baby, and let them go. Look away from those things. Stare at Jesus. Literally translated, gaze at him. So when it says this, looking away or looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, because he was at the starting line, he started this thing, and he will perfect it, or author, he will finish it. He will be there to get us to the end. So I kind of broke up this idea of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 into three different sections. You can see the first one of what. What are we supposed to do as a congregation, and what are we supposed to do as individuals? We're to run. We're to lay aside all the weights that will entangle us from running well. We're to run. Now, how do we do this? We look to Jesus. That's the how. We look to Jesus. He's the author. He's the perfecter. He's the one who started it. He'll get us there. We keep our eyes on him. We turn our eyes from other things. We focus, we gaze on Jesus and Jesus alone. But there's a a why that I want to talk about. But before I talk about the why, let's talk about why we look at Jesus. Because this is what it says. He's the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So immediately, um, there's, there's some everyday examples that we can get out with the writer of Hebrews is getting at. For example, nobody goes to the dude who's like filed bankruptcy seven times and is in $40,000 debt and go, hey bro, would you be able to help me like organize my finances? Nobody does that. And if you do, good luck. Um, or nobody goes to the person who's like, sitting on the couch all day, completely, like, absolutely, it's obvious that they're out of shape and goes, dude, looking for a trainer. Would you mind taking me on as you're, like, understudy? No one does that. No one goes to the F student and asks for tutoring. Hear me. When you want something done, you go to somebody who's good at it. You go to Griffey. When you're looking to hit a baseball, you're going to Jordan to look at fadeaway J. You're looking to Peyton to, to read a defense, which are all true. There's no arguments in all those things, the masters of all three of those things, okay? The rea- and, and so hear me, when you're looking to someone who has ran the spiritual race well, you're looking to Jesus. So this is beautiful, right? Because Jesus is not just saying, look to me, because I came down here and now here I am, see me, I'm at the end of the race. <laughs> no, different than all other religions, our God entered into the race. Jesus, more specifically, looked down the corridor of the race that his father set before him. And he ran it faithfully. So we're not just looking to reach to him for his glory at the end. We're following his example. This is awesome that our God would do this. That he's the one who said it before. And I quote, the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising his shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, or the throne of of God. He has ran his race. He's been faithful uh, to do that. So from that first one, from the what uh, into the, the how, This is where I want to start to explain a little bit why this is important. I want to talk about the why, okay? Now, this is interesting because every text we've ever gone through since we've started on Sunday mornings, every single Sunday, you may not have noticed this, I have tried to lay in front of you the why of what you're supposed to do is Jesus. So you're to run, you're to endure, you're to persevere, you're to contend for Jesus. And yet at the same time, there are moments where in his like kind of crazy will, he gives us sub-points or sub-motivations or sub-reasons. Let me give you an example. Um, according to John 15, we are to like remove our, like this, the sin that w- is within us, okay? So let's just take just brass tacks. You know you're supposed to fight sin, to remove yourself from sin. It's not something that you want in your life. Um, ultimately should be motivated by the cross of Jesus Christ to do that. But what's crazy is we're also told coming alongside that, 
you should also be doing it for your own joy. Because that thing that you're doing is destroying your joy. And by coming under the fact that God has designed the world in such a way, you're seeking after your ultimate joy. In this text, I would argue, hear me, give me grace, Jesus, at least grammatically, how it's laid out, is not the immediate motivation that the author wants us to be motivated by. Okay? Jesus is the ultimate motivation. Please, okay? No, that's true. But according to this text in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, what motivates us to run, what motivates us to persevere, what motivates us to lay aside, what motivates us to look away at Jesus is, and I quote, verse 1, what you thought I probably skipped, but I was waiting to rope a Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let's look at those first two words. Therefore, I'll explain in a second, since. Since this is true, I'm going to tell you to do something. Or because this is true, I'm going to tell you to do something. Maybe more appropriately to our context, because this is true, I'm going to tell you to run this race. I'm going to tell you to lay aside every weight. I'm going to tell you to look at Jesus. And what he is saying is true, that motivates us, is us. Is us. More appropriately, this great cloud of witnesses. So, um, this is where I need to provide the context, right? If you don't know, um, the, the book of Hebrews is chock full of making Jesus beautiful. He's better than Moses. He's better than angels. He's better than Melchizedek. He's just better. And then you get into Hebrews chapter 11. If you didn't grow up in church, you don't know this, but Hebrews 11 is historically the hall of faith, if you will. It lays out all these people who have ran their race, who've done what they have been called to do, and they've been considered faithful. They've been found faithful before God. And what's interesting about seeing this, which as it describes according to verse 1 in chapter 12, is this is that great cloud of witnesses. What's so bizarre about the list that we're given is it's a bunch of busted up people. Like, let me just, I, so the first guy that's mentioned is Abel. I don't have much against Abel. We have a very brief synopsis of, of, of him. He's killed by his brother, but he offers a better sacrifice. I don't have much against Enoch. But listen to this next part of the list of people who are counted faithful. Noah, who got stumped drunk at one point. Abraham, who lied about his wife twice. Sarah, who followed suit in, in Abraham and laughed, disbelieved that God would do what he said he was going to do. Isaac, like father, like son. Jacob, whose name is Deceiver, literally translated, and he lived up to his name. Um, Joseph, don't have much uh, against him, though he would probably braggadocious early on, like most GCU students. Moses, um, Moses, uh, if, if you don't know Moses, Moses didn't even get to complete the earthly task he was given, or at least see the promised land, because him and his people were just unbelievable amounts of unfaithful, or at least uh, disobeyed, couldn't hold on to faith. So Moses is considered in this long list of great people of faith. Rahab was a prostitute. David, he, if you don't know, had someone murdered. I think we went over this story before. Had someone murdered and then took his wife, that man's murdered, and then had a child out of wedlock, right? So he's not like, immediately, check this out, David, who's in the hall of faith, if he came and was like, hey, I'd like to be an elder, we would go, sorry, dude, Right? Like, he's cool enough to be in the hall of faith, but couldn't be an elder. It's Jim's issue. It's his rules. I don't know what to tell you. Um, okay? And then, and then what it does, here's what's crazy about this. Uh, it names five people in the book of Judges. It, it, it names Gideon, Barak, Samson, and uh, Jephthah. If you remember the, the, the story of Judges, if you were here for that, all it was in the book of Judges was an onslaught of people being terrible human beings. Right? And so even if you read Samson's story, go back and read Samson's story. He's not someone you're teaching your kids to emulate their life off of. I promise you. 
Like, he's a womanizer, he disobeys, and yet here he is in the hall of faith. So, that great cloud is sitting there. That great cloud is the reason that we are motivated. How does this work? How does this work? So, I would contend um, this word witnesses... Um, is, it's obviously a noun there, and it appears other times in, um, in verb form and in noun form in the book of Hebrews. But every single time, it does not refer to witnesses as someone watching, because we know in English we have someone who is a witness, they view something, but then we also have witnesses who appear in court, don't we? Which means they're there to proclaim something or make some, something stated as true. And I would argue this idea of this great cloud of witnesses, David, Spurgeon, whoever else, just Spurgeon, Um, okay? This group of people are witnesses, not in watching us, and that's what motivates us. No, 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 they're telling us something. They're telling us something. Let me give you an example of this. Um, So this word appears all over in in Hebrews 11, 2, 4. It actually appears twice in 4, verse 5 and verse 39. But there's one part specifically you can see what I mean. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, in talking about Abel, listen to how it describes Abel as a witness, him speaking, okay? Uh, Verse 4, through faith, though he is dead, talking about Abel, uh, he still speaks. So again, it says this, um, where the writer speaks of Abel, it says this, through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So Abel's life is now saying something to us. So let me translate the first part, what I think Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 could say. I think it could be said like this. Because the people before you are cheering you on, run. Because the people before you are cheering you on, run. So I would argue they've run the race. If this carpet is the the, the race, they've run the race, and here they are, and they're waiting, and they're calling you, and they're saying, go, look, look, listen, if I can make it, and I was a womanizer, and I I disobeyed, and you saw that I I lied, and and trust Delilah, and and here I am, touted as this great hero of faith, but I know my heart. I know it was broken up. I know how much grace I received. If God was good to me in that way, he can be good to you right now. Run. When you stumble, get up and run. The grace of God is big enough, and it's being proclaimed to you by the mom who was a Christian and passed away, by the dad who was a Christian and passed away, by the brother, the sister, the coworker, the friend, whoever it was who has died before you, they are screaming to you now, look, I ran the race that God has set before me. I've done it, and I promise you God was faithful. I'm telling you, look at my life and run. Run. See how good God is. He'll get you there. I know you're only a quarter mile in and you feel like you're done, but I promise you, if you trust in him, if you see his son, you will finish the race that God has set before you. This is phenomenal news. But let's turn this whole thing on its head. Because here's the reality. Before we get to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, as the book of Hebrews, or as chapter 11 is winding down, we're left with two verses that are super bizarre. I don't have them on the screen, but I want to read them for you because I think they speak... um, insane amount of volumes as to um as to what we're trying to get at so sticking with this race analogy i would argue the running analogy starts before we get to hebrews 12 and 1 and 2 this is what it says in verse 39 it just laid out all these people have been faithful right all these people have been faithful he actually at one point hebrews 11 says i don't have enough time to tell you everyone okay so just know it's not just the people mentioned and all these talking about those people though commended through their faith 
did not receive what was promised, since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Let me read that last part again. Since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Here's, it might sound a little confusing, but here's what we can gather as we look at the whole uh, uh, canon of Scripture. These people before us have run the race, but if the carpet is the finish line, at the end of the carpet is the finish line, they haven't crossed the finish line yet. They haven't been made perfect yet. As a matter of fact, they've run the race and they're done with their race, but they're waiting for you to get here. Even now, they are calling, and they have not, and I quote, been perfected yet. According to 1 Corinthians 15, have received a resurrected body yet. They right now are before the Father in heaven. Absolutely true. That's where your family members, if they trusted Jesus, are. That's where your friends are. That's where these people are. If they've trusted in what God is doing through faith by grace alone. And here they are, standing at the finish line, and they have not been perfected because they're waiting for you. So I I need you to hear the anxiousness that's there. They're not just like, come on, dude, you can do it. No, come on, man, I want to finish. I want my body, I I want this to be done. I'm in the presence of the Father, and I know it only gets better from here. Come on, run, run, look at my life. Run, come on, you can do it. So bizarre. So so last year in the fall, myself, Michael Neely, Josh Sorge, and Vincent Clark, were, um, were, we ran the Grand Canyon. We started on the North Rim. It's about 24 miles, and in one trek, we decided to run all the way to the south, right? And so we start very early in the morning. We're going to run all the way through the day. Now, first and foremost, I'm a competitor, right? So I'm thinking we're racing, okay, whatever. And I would have won, just to be clear, if that was a race. But regardless, um, so we're running this. Four of us are running. About halfway on the bottom of the the, the, the trail, uh, the two old guys, Vincent and Josh Swords, start to kind of like taper off. And Michael Neely and I are like, we're grown men. Let's get this done, okay? And so um, we're running. And so every now and then we would stop at water spots. We would let them catch up. We'd wait for them. And then we'd go run together. And then we would break up, break apart because they'd walk a little bit. I mean, it's 24 miles. It's a, it's a long run, okay? Well, you start to hit the ascension. And as you start to ascend, it's just kickbacks. If you've ever done the Grand Canyon, and I don't mean like, you guys, listen, you're not going up like 20 flights of stairs. It's like 11 miles of hell, okay? And, and you're trying to like text 911 to get out of there. Um, you, you, you're just, and every time, I've obviously never had a baby before, but I imagine the same language my wife uses because in it, you're like, I've got a promise I'll never do this again if you get me out of here. I promise, right? And then you get out and you're like, I'm gonna be able to do that again, um, Okay. So you're just trucking your way up, trucking your way up. Well, something clicks in Michael and I, and we're like, we just got to get out of here, man. We got to get out of here. And so we start hiking. We start hiking. We start hiking. And we, we go all the way, and Josh and, and Vincent are still a little bit behind. And something clicks within Josh's sword, and he ends up uh, catching up with us. And us three get to the top of the south rim, and we finish hiking the Grand Canyon. It's like 8 at night. It's so cold. It's probably 35 degrees out. But Vincent's still down there, okay? And he's still going. He's an old man. Um, and so here is Vincent going. We kind of went to the warmth. And if you've ever done anything ex- this extraneous before, you're tired. Like your legs won't stop shaking. You're so hungry and yet nauseous at the same time. But all we were thinking in the midst of all the pain that we felt, in the midst of all that was going on is, where's Vincent? Where is this dude? Come on, like Vincent, come on. And we're waiting. We know where it is. We, you know, we're looking down. If you've never seen the Grand Canyon at night, it's just this big black abyss, right? doesn't help that Vincent's black, and so he's, he's down there, and so he's down there, and we're waiting. We're just looking for his light, his headlight, and so here he is doing these kickbacks back and forth, and we, we don't know who is who, right? But all the while, we're just waiting, man. Come on, dude. Come on. Come on. We're like letting Diana know his wife. Like, no, he's, he'll, he'll come out, right? We're hoping. 
We're waiting. We cannot wait until he makes that corner. I would argue, Vincent, to get out alive, FYI, he runs our security stuff now. Well, he runs a lot of things. Um, so good for him. Next time if we do it, maybe a little faster, Vincent. Um, okay, but, but here's what I will say. I would argue the angst that, um, that Michael, Josh, and myself were feeling, it wasn't this ungodly angst. Maybe there was worry mixed in that. That's probably not as good. But there was this like, you can do it, dude. You can, come on, come on, come on. I, I would argue right now, if you, your parents were believers or your grandparents were believers, that's right now what they're doing. Their life is speaking volume to you, going, come on. Look. If you think pornography disqualifies you, I promise you, repent and believe and turn to him and run. If you think gossip does it, repent and believe and turn to him, run. If it's greed, if it's power, repent, believe, turn to him and run. Because I was a failure. And I'm telling you, his grace is big enough. So in some crazy way, this ties us all together. I, I wish I knew how. I wish I knew the depths of what it looks like. But I will say right now, we will, theologically, absolutely, biblically true, cross the threshold, threshold together. According to 1 Corinthians, first the dead are in Christ when Jesus returns. The dead in Christ will rise, but in a twinkling of an eye, they're going to receive a resurrected body, and we're with them. We came in, so like a marathon that's about to start, that's how we're finishing. We're gathering behind. We see Abraham up there. Your parents are there with them, right? And we're going to cross this finish line together, and things are going to be beautiful. Every sad thing will become untrue. But it's all together. They were not perfected without us. Though right now, through their lives, they cheer us on. Hear me. I believe in the church. I believe in the church. This is something God has called us to do together. To finish, I quote a professor from Covenant Seminary, a guy that um, I got to spend last week with. He said something really phenomenal that I wanted to share with you. He said this, We don't re-narrate our story as a solo, but an ensemble. Meaning, You come from a life of consumerism and individualism. You don't come into the church as some individual that's separate from the body that is sitting in this room right now, that's separate from the community that you meet with throughout the week. No, no, no. We re-narrate our story, not as a solo, by yourself, but an ensemble. Together, we'll sing the praises of Jesus in the end. That's good news. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. I think I speak for all of us to say that we are, um, we're extremely grateful. Man, it's, uh, it's good news to see in your word that though you are our ultimate why and motivation, you've given us um, brothers and sisters to motivate us at the same time. And that's so great to even look across the aisle and, and know that, um, that we can look at each other's life currently and see the goodness and grace of God that in rooms there's ex-prostitutes sitting with with Bible-believing kids who grew up and were raised on the altar, and together, these lives massed together to make this beautiful ensemble of singing your love for us. May we push into that. May it be true of us that we're not trying to separate ourselves or do this as a solo act, but everything we see, it's at us. It's doing this together. It's being motivated by one another. Jesus, you're our king. You're the one who's leading the way. We follow not just the fact that you're at the finish line, and have crossed that finish line perfectly, but you also are an example. So we need to go to your Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We need to see how you lived your life, and we need to walk it out in the same way. Carve away the things that need to be let go of, the sand uh, uh, buckets that we need to let go of, and run with endurance. That we keep our eyes on you, that we look away from other things. 
thank you so much for who you are, what you've done, what you continue to do, not just within us as individuals, not just within Redemption Peoria, but within your church. We really are grateful for your church. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.